0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. We're going to be diving in a moment into God's Word together, but if you're new here or maybe you're new to church and something we talk about today doesn't sound familiar, something doesn't make sense, I'll be around in the lobby after the service. I'd love to help answer any questions that you might have. Uh, We would love for you to become part of our circle of spiritual friends most importantly, we'd love for you to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to begin in a moment. The words will also be on the screen, but before we start, I want to share a story about Walt Disney and his two daughters, his two daughters being Diane and Sharon. Diane is the bigger one, of course, Sharon's the smaller one. And Diane tells the story that when she started going to school, her friends let her know how famous her daddy really was. One day she came home from school and she said, "'Daddy, are you the Walt Disney?' And of course he said, "'Well, I I think so. What do you mean by the Walt Disney?' And she said, "'Daddy, are you the famous Walt Disney who makes movies?' And of course, he said, well, honey, you know, I I make movies and cartoons and et cetera. And and she said, well, daddy, I didn't know how famous you were. Can I have your autograph? (laughs) And so when she realized how great her dad really was, it opened her mind uh, to just all kinds of things in the world. And what I want to do this morning is tell you how great your heavenly Father is, so to open up your mind uh, to all sorts of things in God's Word. And my desire this morning is not to present something new. I'm not going to preach anything new, but I want to help you understand an old truth in a really, really new way. Now, the passage that we're about to read in Ephesians chapter 2 is pretty common, and so if you've been in church for any length of time, I'm asking you not just to glaze over, not just to go to sleep, not to think, well, I've heard this, I know this, but I'm praying that God might help you learn something new, but even if you don't learn something new, my prayer is that you will love the Lord Jesus Christ more because of these few minutes than when you came in. So let's go ahead and dive in together. Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse one. Will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible and I'll read. Ephesians chapter two in verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I wanna begin by giving you the big idea. What is today's big idea from this passage? Well, it's simply this, we never graduate from grace. We never graduate from grace grace. The word grace is used 155 times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses it 100 times by himself, which is why he's often called the apostle of grace. The word grace shows up 12 times in the book of Ephesians, three in chapter 1, three in chapter 2, and three in chapter 3, and then three more times in the last half of the book. Grace refers to unmerited favor or undeserved favor. Grace is the opposite of karma. Karma is all about getting what you deserve, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. John Stott says that grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Jerry Bridges says that grace is God reaching downward to people who rebel against him. Now, if you like to follow along with a message like I do, I wanna go ahead and give you the outline, let you know how the sermon's gonna flow. You can see it in your notes, in the bulletin, but you can also find the outline on the app and fill in the blanks there if that's helpful to you. But really, the sermon can be divided up into three sections by three questions. Here's the three questions. Why did we need God's grace? How did God show us His grace? And what are the outcomes of God's grace in our lives? Why did we need it? How did God show it to us? And what are the outcomes of God's grace in our lives? But again, the main point today is simply this, we never graduate from grace. Let's go ahead and jump in, starting in verse number one. Why did we need God's grace? Well, number one, because we were dead. We were dead. Verses one through three describe our condition before we experienced salvation. And in verse one, he starts out this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's not talking just to the person next to you, but he says, you, you, Christian, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. By death, he's not talking about uh, physical death, it's not that we were physically dead, but rather we were spiritually dead. Our problem wasn't that we were good people who occasionally did bad things. The, The problem was that we were dead people who only rarely did good things by the grace of God because of His image stamped on us, but we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Just as a dead person can't respond to light, sound, smell, taste, pain, or anything else, we were unable to respond to anything spiritual before we were saved. The Bible goes so far as to say we didn't have the Spirit living inside of us. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Romans 3, 10 and 11, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Now, if you have children or if you have grandchildren, if you've ever worked with kids, if you've ever seen a child, you're gonna understand this point. Kids do not have to be taught how to sin. They just don't. You don't have to send your children or your grandchildren to sin camp every summer, right? For them to learn how to sin. They just naturally know how to do it. You know, sometimes our world tells us that children only do quote unquote bad things because they learn it from their environment. They're taught those things. Well, that wasn't our experience with our children, and it probably wasn't with you either. We had one of our daughters who particularly, if there's something that she did not want to eat, no matter how much you told her she had to eat it, she would look you in the eye, hold her plate over her high chair, and she would look you in the eye while dumping it into the floor. Now, she didn't learn to do that from mom and dad, right? Like, when Sarah makes broccoli, I didn't just look at her and say, broccoli again, really, babe? I didn't do that, right? They didn't learn that from us. They they knew how to do that all on their own. When it comes to fighting for something like the remote, even when they were little, they would fight for the remote. They didn't learn that because they saw Sarah and me fighting for the remote, right? She didn't chase me around the house with a broom trying to get the remote. At our house, everybody knows who the remote belongs to. (laughs) It belongs to my wife, that's who it belongs to. No, they knew how to do that instinctively. Because they were born dead, born in sin. So that was our condition before salvation. Why else did we need God's grace? Well, number two, we were deceived. We were deceived. Notice verse two with me. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. When he says following the ways of the world, he's not talking about the physical created world, but rather the world system, this system uh, in the world that hates God and opposes God. John says it's a system that's full of lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life. This system is controlled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Paul very carefully chooses his wording here. He talks about this archangel of darkness. We're going to find out later in chapter six, when we get to it in the spring, who the archangel of darkness is. But just as there's an archangel of light, Michael, we find in the book of Jude, there's an archangel of darkness, and his name is Satan. And the Bible says, no matter how good you thought you were, or no matter how good you think that unsaved friend is, it says, actually, they are being deceived by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We were deceived. Number three, why did we need God's grace? Because we were disobedient we were disobedient. It's right here in the text. Verse two, it says, the spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. I want to ask that we leave this verse on the screen for just a minute and notice two words that really just kind of jumped out at me this week. Uh, The word in, he says, the spirit of disobedience is in us. You know, the interesting thing about our sin is it's not just something that we do out here, but it's something that's inside of all of us. Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful above all things. Jesus said sin comes from within. Sin doesn't start without, it always starts within. But anything about the word disobedient, I don't like to talk a lot about the original languages. One, because I'm not the expert, just because you have a few seminary classes, it doesn't make you an expert in Greek or Hebrew. Uh, but I, And I also want us to trust our English Bible that we have in our lap. But occasionally there's a, a word that might jump out in the original language that'll help you understand, give you a bigger picture of what's taking place. So this word disobedient, I'm gonna tell you what it is in Greek and see if you can make the association, I'm sure you will. The word in Greek is simply apatheia, apatheia, however you wanna say it, apatheia. What does that sound like? Sounds like apathy. So he's not just talking about people who do these five things in disobedience, he is saying that people who are not in Christ are apathetic to the things of God. If you've ever had a cold, and occasionally this time of year, I get the the runny nose. you've ever had a cold and you try to smell something that's normally good, it's a homemade apple pie or, or that meatloaf that typically smells so good, you put it under your nose, there's nothing. That's the nature of an unsaved person. They have no appetite, true appetite for anything that has to do with Christ. We were disobedient. Number four. Why else did we need God's grace? Because we were depraved. We were depraved. Verse 3, "...all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts." In the New Testament, this idea of cravings has a very negative connotation. It refers to a desire for all sorts of impurity and sin and lust and covetousness. It's a desire for things that don't please the Lord. But interestingly, he doesn't just say we had the cravings, but later in verse three, he says that we followed the cravings. We gave into the thoughts and desires of the flesh. We were depraved. Even if you didn't do things before your salvation that were depraved, uh, you didn't go out and actively, some of us who were saved at a young age weren't robbing any banks. But even if you didn't do it on the outside, God says if you lust or you want it or you lie or you hate in your heart, it's just, just as bad as if you've done it in your body. Matthew chapter five. We were depraved. But then lastly, we were doomed. Why did we need God's grace? Because we were doomed. Verse three, he said, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Does this mean that God has a temper? Does this mean that God just flies off the handle capriciously? God doesn't have any kind of stability? Not at all. The wrath of God is just as much part of his character as his love. God is all wrath, just like God is all love. His wrath is entirely predictable. God's wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility toward evil and his settled refusal to compromise with it. Now, wrath isn't a popular topic for us to discuss among educated company, especially when we talk about the wrath of God in hell. You know, it's not fun to talk about hell and mixed company or even to preach about hell because we all have friends and family who either have gone or are on their way there unless the grace of God intervenes. But you know, Jesus preached on hell more than he preached on heaven. He talked about it so much as you read through the gospels. And so what the apostle Paul is saying here is, before you trusted Jesus, you were doomed. You were on your way to a Christless eternity in the place called hell. You say, well, Pastor Matt, what about the people who aren't that bad? I mean, you've described a pretty grim condition, but maybe you know somebody who's not a believer and they're nicer than some of the Christians you know. I won't ask for the raise of hands, but I know a few unbelievers who are nicer than some Christians that I know, right? Right? Well, you know, even on your nicest day, the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So it doesn't matter how good you are, how much work you do for the community. I like to describe an unsaved person's good works like this. Their works are no doubt good as far as common grace is concerned, it's good. But it's kind of like two members of ISIS just about to blow up a hospital And right before they push the button, one member of ISIS shares his lunch with another member of ISIS. All right, that's a nice work. It is good to share your lunch, but good works can never outweigh the evil that's in his heart. And your good works can never outweigh the evil of just one sin that you have committed in the eyes of a holy God. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. You say, Pastor Matt, the way you preach, it sounds like nobody can measure up. You sound like there's nobody who can get to heaven through good works. That's exactly what the Bible teaches. Every one of us, me included, fall into the description of Ephesians 2, one through three. Every one of us. And maybe you're sitting here today as a Christian and you're like, man, why does he gotta be talking about that? I mean, come on. Maybe you brought somebody with you today and you're like, man, if I'd have known he was gonna start a sermon like this, I never would have bought my buddy from work. Here's why we gotta understand this. Because we'll never understand the depth of the love of Jesus until we understand the depth of our sin. It's kind of like going to the doctor. If the doctor says, hey, I've got some medicine for you. If you don't think you're sick, you're like, what's the big deal? I'm good, I don't need any medicine. But if you know you're going to die, unless you take the medicine, all of a sudden that doctor becomes compassionate and he or she becomes your friend. And this morning I'm praying that you'll see that Jesus is compassionate and that Jesus wants to be your friend. We needed the grace of God in our lives and we never graduate from grace. How does God show us his grace? If we know we need it, how does he show? It? Well, Paul tells us how he's going to show it. In verse four, how did God show us his grace? Number one, by giving us his love. By giving us his love. Notice verse four. But because of his great love for us, God, and we'll finish that verse in a moment, some of your translations say, but God. I have those two words underlined in my Bible, even though they're separated, uh, but God. Two of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Whenever the apostle Paul wanted to make a point, he got you guilty, you see yourself as needy. He would say, but God, what did God do? His great, gave us his great love. This is not a love that just likes us, but it's a love that seeks the highest good in the one loved. Because of God's grace, He gave us unmerited, undeserved love. Number two, He gave us unmerited, undeserved mercy. He gave us mercy, verse four. It says, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. This isn't just a judicial word that God let us off the hook. God decided to ignore our sin, but it's deeper than that. God had compassion. He had kindness. He had empathy. He had sensitivity. He even had pity for your sin and for mine. Justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. And in God's grace, he gave us unmerited, undeserved mercy. What else did God, how else did God show us his grace? Number three, by giving us new life. By giving us new life. This is in verses five and six. Notice what he says. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now this is extra credit, but I wanna make sure that we really stop here for a moment and highlight these three things. Verses one through 10 is all one sentence in the original. The Apostle Paul loved run-on sentences. You English teachers wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't have appreciated him as a student. I remember in college and seminary, we had to diagram some of the sentences of Ephesians and they just go on forever, you know, page after page after page. But if it helps, I wanna let you know that in these 10 verses, there's only three main verbs and they all fall in verses five and six. So the subject of the sentence is in verse four, it's God. God's doing all the action and everything else modifies these three verbs. What are they? One, God raised us up or God gave us new life made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with Christ in heavenly places. If you write in your Bible or if you like to take notes, I'm gonna give you a, a word to write beside each one of these. Beside the word made us alive, write the word resurrection, resurrection. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus rose from the grave, we shared in all of his benefits. So he's pointing back to the resurrection of Jesus and saying, what happened to Jesus physically happened to us spiritually the moment we put our faith in Christ. So resurrection. The second verb, raised us up. Beside that, you can write the word ascension. Ascension. We talked last week about how that 40 days after Jesus rose from the grave, he was on the earth doing good works for 40 days. And then he ascended up into heaven. This is the same exact language that Paul uses here about raising up into the heavens. What he's saying is all the blessings and benefits of Jesus ascending into heaven are available to us, his followers. And then thirdly, seated us with him in heavenly realms. Beside the word seated, you can write a word that might not make a lot of sense, but I wanted to go ahead and throw it out. It's the word session. Whenever a court Uh, We're about to begin in a courtroom. You would say, court is in session. That's another word for when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The judge sat on his throne, his seat. The king sat on his throne. Now that's a lot, just simply to say this. What Paul is not doing is getting spooky. Paul isn't saying that somehow you're here, but somehow you're really in heaven. He's not doing some kind of time warp space age thing, okay? All Paul is doing is saying this, your identity is wrapped up in Jesus. If you've put your faith in Jesus, all the benefits that God the Father has given him at his resurrection, ascension, and seated on the throne, all of those benefits are available to you right now. Think of the representative for whom you voted that's in Washington, D.C. a man or woman, one of your representatives. You can say you have a man or a woman in D.C. representing you. And in the same way, what Paul is saying is you've got a man in heaven representing you. When you trusted Jesus, you got new life, and it's eternal life. There's one last way. God showed us his grace, number four, by giving us faith. By giving us faith, verses eight and nine. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. For it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. Every day of our lives, we live by faith. You know, even if you're not a spiritual person, you live by faith this week. If you cracked open a water bottle and you took a drink, you exercise faith. You exercise, unless you sampled it for poison first, you had faith that it was gonna be clean. When you drive across a bridge, you exercise faith. When you're sitting in a chair right now, you're having faith that that chair is gonna hold you up. And so what Paul is saying is, is this, the way we, the decision we make, if there's any responsibility that we have, it's this, That's to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. We we want him to be the Lord of our life. That's the exercise of faith. But get this, Paul says even faith is a gift from God. If you underline in your Bibles or you you write arrows and mark all over yours like I do with mine, verses eight and nine where he says, it is the gift of God, point an arrow back to two things. Point an arrow back to grace and then point an arrow back to faith because grammatically both are a gift, the grace and the faith. I've given you a number of verses in your outline for you to read through and see how even that is a gift from God. We never graduate from grace. Everything we have is because of Jesus and everything we ever will have will be because of Christ. So we've looked at why we need grace. We've looked at how God shows us grace, but we've got one more question before we're done. What are the outcomes of grace. What does grace produce in our lives? Well, there's two things in this text. First of all, our good works. Grace produces our good works. In response to what God does for us, we do good for others. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word handiwork means masterpiece. The Greek word is poema. You are God's poem. God's writing a beautiful story with your story. And he's made you just the way he wants you to be. We finished up last week looking at the end of chapter one and he's talking about the church. He says that the church, its purpose is to to fill everything on earth in every way in the name of Christ. So in other words, what he's saying here is, our job as a church is yes to give the gospel, but our job as a church is also to do good works. This is why we want to fill every sphere of society with good works. This is why we do the Maker Center. This is why we do the Foster Closet. Uh, this is why we're, we have a director of city ministries. This is why we want to serve with children and do children's ministries like we do. This is why we've got big dreams for the next 25 years together, because we believe that God is calling us as a church to fill to every sphere and nook and cranny of the Canal Valley with good works. That's our calling. But the neat thing about the good works, it's not like we're just sitting back trying to like make some up, but he says here the very last words of verse 10. He says he prepared those good works in advance. I'll ask it this way. How many of you were at the Easter egg hunt this past spring? Anybody at the Easter egg hunt? A lot of you were there. We had like 200,000 Easter eggs, it was a lot. It might not have been 200,000, but it felt like that. And and so I thought an Easter egg hunt was whenever you hide the eggs. But but thankfully to the generosity of Chick-fil-A and some others, we were able to have so many eggs, there were no place to hide them all. And so our workers, if some of you were out there, you were just kind of basically just like throwing eggs out on the ground, right? And then the kids all lined up behind like the police tape in this picture, and and every age group, Jane would say, go, and they would take off running. Now, they already knew where the eggs were. It wasn't like they had to really find them. They were just there, right? So the eggs had been prepared in advance for them. Let me tell you what I didn't see much of. I didn't see very many kids just kind of moseying out and picking up an egg whenever they wanted. There was a couple of the small ones that did, but You know what I mostly saw? I saw like brass knuckles and nunchucks and elbows flying and people were like diving on the eggs, trying to get to them before somebody else did. There was this sense of anticipation. In Ephesians chapter two, God is giving us a sense of anticipation. He's saying, church, wake up. There's good works that God has prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Stop worrying about whether or not you're going to fail. Stop worrying about whether or not you're going to mess up. Just go to it, man. Just give of your talents and give of your time and give of your treasure. Will you make mistakes along the way? Yes, you will. Will you make poor decisions along the way? Absolutely. But don't sit back and just wait for somehow lightning to strike. The good works are already out there. Whatever God's prompting your heart to do this week, go do it, go do it. Because he says, that's why he created you. Lastly, I save this for last. Even though it's out of order, it's my favorite. Why, what are the outcomes of the grace of God? Lastly, number two, the eternal glory of Jesus in the church. The eternal glory of Jesus in the church. Why would God save a group of people like us We know who we are. Why would God do that? Well, in verse seven, he says, in order that, in order that he might, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The coming ages refers to the waves, like the waves of an ocean. He says, the waves of the ages, forever, as long as you can think in the future, 10,000 years, 10 million years, 10 gazillion years. He says, for as long as you can think, the waves of time, God has saved you to be a trophy of his grace. This picture of heaven is in Revelation chapter seven and verse nine, he says, after this, i looked. John says, before me was a great multitude in heaven that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. I've read my Bible through a number of times, but I've never seen this until this week. Do you know that the very last verse of the Bible is all about grace? Listen to Revelation 22:21, the Very last words of the Bible. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. That's why we say we never graduate from grace. Why did we need God's grace? Because we were dead, we were deceived, we were disobedient, we were depraved, we were doomed. But how did God show us his grace? By giving us love and mercy and new life and faith. What are the outcomes of God's grace? Our good works and the eternal glory of Christ in the church. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.